How is everybody? Man, it's a full house. Isn't this awesome? I, you know, everywhere I go, I'm thankful that the Church of the Lord is still alive. Right? That that you can read a lot of statistics, you can you can read a lot of stuff, but um, but I'm seeing I'm seeing the Church of God rise up, do what it's called to do. The people of God fill the house of God. Uh, why is it important that we're in the church of God? Um, because we get to, one, we get to accountability, but we get things deposited into us. You know, the world's trying to take everything out of us, and it's trying to, it's trying to, 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 to just squeeze the life out of us. And it's important that we come to places like this that fill us up to a place that when we go out there, we've got something left to give. And so I'm just thankful that you're, that you're here today. I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful that my wife is here with me. So... Monica's here. We've been married nine years this year, so I, I, I tell my church, remind her how blessed she is. I already know. I just need her to be reminded every once in a while. My oldest daughter is with us, and, uh, and since I was here last year, we've added another daughter to the... Y'all pray for me. I live with four women. So, uh, raising three daughters. I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and our, our baby will be one-year-old on Wednesday. And so, yeah, so it's... Uh, our house is full and, and loud and bright. Glittery, everything's glittery, right? I, <laughs> so, um, and Darby, I just want to honor you today, honor your wife. So thankful for you and for all the years of ministry you've been here um, as a young pastor. I'm thankful for guys like you, for guys who have shown us you can you can stay faithful. You can you can love your family and lead the church, and you can do it for decade after decade after decade. So thank you so much. I think you ought to give your your pastor some honor this morning. Thank you. And then I I, I want to say thank you to my friend Hans. Hans is really you've been my friend, and uh, for for a long time now. And I appreciate what you do for this church and the way that you uh, partner with Darv and and all the stuff that you're doing. And so. And Rachel too. Rachel makes you better in every way, all right? And so, so we know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, Rachel, you make sure and use that. When, when he's being sassy this week, you tell him, I make you better in every way. Chad said. <laughs> so it is, it's, it's good to be here. I love this part of the year. I love, I love the holiday season. Um, I, you know what I found out about the holiday season? I'm just going to talk for a minute, then we'll get into the Word. We'll go to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 here in just a moment. I love Christmas. I love the holiday season. Everybody loves Christmas, though, right? Everybody, what I have found is everybody loves baby Jesus because baby Jesus makes everybody money. Right? Because every, every liberal department store in the world has a nativity scene up for sale right now. They, they don't, they're going to push every liberal agenda that they can, but they've got nativity scenes up for sale because baby Jesus will make them money. Um, but we know that baby Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us. And the, and the lamb does become the lion. <laughs> and the baby does become the savior. And that's why we're here today. We celebrate Emmanuel. And I just want to remind you that I'm going to get to that even towards the end of my message. That Emmanuel, that's the whole purpose of the season. God is with us. That God came to be with all of us. So let's pray today as we get started about that. Father, I just thank you. I thank you that you are, that you're with us. That as we start this first Sunday of December and enter into the Christmas season and all the parties and all the pageants and all the plays and all the stuff that comes with it. Help us to guard our hearts that we don't get so crowded with the stuff that we forget the Savior. 
God, I want to I want to enjoy the holidays and I want to celebrate it with my family. But I want to keep you number one. And on this Sunday, first Sunday of December, it's my it's a great privilege for me to be here with my extended family. And I pray that today you'd help all of our hearts be focused on you. As we got even with the announcements, no, we got a lot of stuff going on. But all the stuff points back to you, and all the stuff is because of you. And Father, today we just want to give you glory and we want to give you honor. And I pray that today you would use me in spite of myself, my fears, and all of my failures. And I pray that today, God, you would give us ears to hear, a mind to comprehend, and a heart that's willing to change. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I did bring something with me. I've got a few of these. Um, we, we preached a series at our church back in the first of the year. I was really praying about, uh, Lord, what do you want to say to our church? How do you want to start the year off? And so we preached a series called Frequency, and it's all about how to tune into the voice of God. Um, you know, as a, as a pastor, a lot of people would think that my greatest gifting would be my gift to communicate to people. But what I have found in the last decade plus of ministry is that my greatest gift is not communication. My greatest gift is the ability to hear God's voice. Because I don't have anything to say if I can't hear the voice of God. And, uh, and really, but that's not true for just a pastor. Every, every believer God wants to speak to. And, uh, and so um, along with that, we wrote this little booklet. Now, it's not professional. It's not, it's, you ain't going to find it on Amazon. It's just something we did in-house. But I brought a few of those with me, and they're free if anybody wants one. Just to, it's just a real quick. You know, all the men don't like to read, so I wrote it where you can read it in 30 minutes. Um, but... Um, just something on, on how to hear the voice of God. Let me ask you a question as we start the message today. Anybody ever been on an awkward first date? Right. <laughs> My brother, he was like, let me tell you. <laughs> right? Not Megan. We know. She's the one who made the cut. But all the other ones, right? That's, anybody else ever been on an awkward first date? Where just, you know, they just told you way more than what you wanted to know? All right? Nope. I, I, like just, I was like, man, I just... Dinner, maybe your favorite color, what was your favorite movie? But I just found out way more about you than I ever wanted to know about you. Um, the reason I say that is because some of you in the room know me, some of you in the room don't know me, but you're about to get to know me, all right? So you're, you're gonna find out some stuff about me that maybe even if we've known each other for a while, you may not know all of my story. And, uh, but I really feel like I've got a word from the Lord and, and that part of that is me telling you my story. And you know, um, from an early age on, Life didn't look like it does now. My mom and dad's, our home life was busted up and mom and dad divorced. And, and in that divorce, it left me at the hands of a predator they didn't know about. And so I lived through uh, sexual abuse as a kid for, for many years. And, uh, and, and that really, as you would imagine, did a lot to me. And it, and it, and it really, th it, it thwarted my, my view of life and stole away my innocence. It messed up my childhood. And, um, and, and nobody knew for a long time. I didn't tell anybody until I was out of, my, out of the house and, and on my own and into college. Um, and, and, but, and I'll say this. So let me, let me, I don't want to leave my parents in a bad light. My mom and dad have been remarried for 25 years this year. Um, and so the, the, they, they, they figured things out. And when my mom remarried on a Friday night in March of 1997, mom and dad got remarried. And my mom went to church on Sunday and she gave her life to Jesus two days later because she said, I knew I could not raise you boys, my brother and I, 
and love your dad and do it the way that it needed to be done on my own anymore. And so she gave her life to Jesus. It took my dad another 10 years. He, he had some things to work through. Um, but they've been serving the Lord together now for the last 15 years. My parents are in church with me. They, they go to our church. And so, so, I mean, all of that, God, I mean, I, I tell my mom all the time, if we wrote our story out, we could make a really good Lifetime movie. You know, like that, that's kind of, <laughs> but, but Jesus stepped in and changed everything for us. And so our, our timeline, the narrative of my life changed but by the time it changed, the damage had been done. And, and I lived life with low self-esteem. I lived, you know, if you knew me when I was a kid, I was really backwards. I was really shy. You'd have never thought I'd do something like this. I would have never thought I'd be up in front of people because I didn't want anybody to notice me. I didn't want anybody to, to acknowledge me or recognize me. I didn't think that I had anything worth being known for. All because of the abuse that happened and the, and the way that it just, it just started the, the narrative of my life. And... Um, and that was that was part of the story, and then uh, and then something shifted in me, and I was and, I, and as I got into older, I got into high school and teenage years, I decided, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna prove to everybody that I'm worth something, and so my my drug became accomplishment. And, uh, and so I couldn't just play sports. I had to be the best at sports. I couldn't just go to school. I had to go all the way through and get a doctorate degree. I couldn't just pastor a church. I had to have a really successful church. And, and you know what I found is it looked good to everybody on the outside. Everything I was doing looked good. And everything I, I was doing was, was successful. And everything I was doing, people were patting me on the back and, 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 make, and they were proud of me for it. But what they did not know was there was still this broken little boy on the inside. And all it was doing was trying to prove to people that I was worth something. They weren't even watching anymore. They weren't even looking. And, that, and the reason I say that is because I'm going to preach a message to you today called The Good That Comes from the Bad and the Ugly. And I say that as a setup. Again, I, I told you, my name's Chad. I'm sorry for the TMI of our first day. You just found out way more about me than you probably wanted to know. But I do that because I want you to know the good of my life didn't come from from silver platters and from, from, from being put on a pedal. So the good of my life came because I put the broken parts of my life into the hands of a redeeming and a restoring God. And I think that's the story of all of our lives, that there's good that always comes from the bad and the ugly. And so we're going to preach through the life of Joseph today. And I'm going to read to you one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. If, I was, if, I, if they said you only get to preach from five stories in the Bible the rest of your life, Genesis 50, and the story of Joseph would be at the top of that list for me. And so Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 says this. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It says in, in I, I'm sorry, I'll read in verse 19 and 20, Genesis 19. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me and my God that I can punish you. In verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. So that I could save the lives of many people. You know, and that's a great, this is the culmination of the story of Joseph. This is, this, is, this is a great end to a really dark story, in all honesty. And to fully appreciate what he's saying in this moment, you have to know the full story of Joseph. And many of you in the room do, but I'm going to try to bring him to life to you for a few moments. And I'm going to preach to you through the key phrases of this verse. You see, Joseph, if you think about it, you read the scripture, Joseph's born into a dysfunctional family. A major part of that dysfunctional family is his father Jacob's partiality towards him. 
that he was his, he was the favorite son of his daddy. And, uh, and in Genesis 37, we see that, that he, his brothers knew he was the favorite son of his daddy. And, and, his, and his daddy made this gesture. And, uh, and, and the, on, on the flannel graph in the Sunday school class that I grew up in, it was Joseph and the coat of many colors, right? And so he gives him this coat that signifies you're my favorite son and I like you better than I like the rest of them. And, 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 it, and it sets this, this dysfunction up within his family and his brothers. The Bible says his brothers hated him because of how much his daddy favorited him. And as a teenager, what happens is Joseph has a dream. So in that, in that dream, his brothers bow down to him. And then he has another dream. And in that dream, his, his mom and his daddy and all of his family, they bow down to him. And, and what he does is, is in naivety and immaturity and probably in some arrogance and some pride, he says, I'm going to go tell everybody about my dream. Which is, there's a warning in that for all of us that you got to be careful who you show your dreams with. You got to be careful who you let into the private parts of your life because not everybody means, needs to know everything about you. And Joseph, in, in naivety and in arrogance, told his brothers, I had a dream and you're going to bow down to me. And the Bible says they hated him all the more. And so there's this, there's this rivalry, this hatred between him and his brothers. And, and what happens is... He's one day his daddy says, I want you to go out and I want you to check on your brothers. And and uh, and, and so he goes to check on his brothers to make sure that they're doing what they're doing, you know, that they're supposed to be doing. And the, and the Bible says they saw him from a long ways off. You know why they saw him from a long ways off? He had that jacket on. Right. He, he had that bracket. And they said, we know that jacket. And we see him coming. And they made this plan. The plan was one of the brothers influences the rest. The plan is we're going to we're going to kill our brother. Some of you, you know the story. What happens is by the time he arrives, another brother has influence and they don't kill him. They throw him into a pit and the intention was they're going to come back and save him. By the time he comes back, the rest of the brothers have sold him into slavery because there's an Ishmaelite band, Ishmaelite band of slave traders coming by. And for 20 pieces of silver, they sell him into slavery. And I want you to imagine with me that you're Joseph. At that point in his life, Joseph was a 17-year-old young man. He'd be in your youth group today. He's a 17-year-old teenager, and, and he, his whole world is turned upside down because he was the favorited son of his father, and now he's a slave. He is in a foreign country that serves foreign gods. He, he knows nobody. He knows anything. He's been trafficked, and, and when he gets to Egypt, they, the Ishmaelite band of, of slave traders, they take him to Egypt, and they put him on the auction block, and they auction him off. And as they auction him off, what happens is the, there's a man named Potiphar that bids on Joseph and wins Joseph. Potiphar, in our day and age, would be like the head of the Secret Service. Right? He, he is, he's high up in defense and he's high up serving the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And, and he puts him on the auction block and Pharaoh bids on him. Pharaoh wins him as a slave. And then what happens is Potiphar learns to trust this guy. Potiphar learns to trust Joseph because Joseph is gifted. You can read through the story of Joseph and you understand he's gifted with administration. He's a strategic thinker. Joseph knows how to implement strategy and carry out a plan. And Potiphar can really, as a businessman, see all of these, uh, these giftings and these personality traits about Joseph. And then there's something interesting that happens. If you read through the story of Joseph, time and time again, there's this phrase that God was with Joseph. It's the narrative. God was with Joseph. And so Potiphar didn't understand that. All Potiphar knew was everything this guy touches goes to gold. 
He, he, everything that I put Joseph in charge of, he's successful. Everything I put Joseph in charge of, it grows. Everything I put Joseph in charge of, it blossoms. And so he says, I'm, he keeps trusting Joseph more. The Bible says that he turned his entire state over to him and that, and that, and that Potiphar was extremely blessed with everything that Joseph did. And Potiphar didn't know it, but it was because the Lord was with Joseph. And so he turns over his entire estate to him and he, and he gives him free reign of everything except for one thing, his wife. Understandably so. The only problem is, is his wife didn't get the memo. And so his wife starts making moves at Joseph and starts making advances of Joseph. And I love this. I love the way that Joseph handles that part of the story because Joseph told him, I won't do this, but your husband's a good man. He's been good to me. And I wouldn't do this against your husband, but I, most importantly, I would, do, I would not do this against my God. And you see that Joseph is in a place he shouldn't be, little with things that he shouldn't do. But even in those situations, he held on to his convictions and he held on to the way he viewed God. And so, and so he tells Potiphar's wife, no matter I'm not, we're not doing that. We're not having, you, you, you get away from me. And, and in that, Potiphar's wife gets mad at the rejection. And you guys, some of you, you know the story. She lies on him. And he gets put in prison. He gets put in prison unjustly. So the favorited son of his father has been in a pit. Now he's been in Potiphar's house. And he finds himself in prison. And when he gets to prison, again, the Lord is with Joseph. He gets to prison and and, 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 and while he's there, there's gifts that were lying dormant in his life that he didn't know about. And that was the gift of being able to interpret dreams. And, and he's sitting there and, and, and there's, there's two men in prison with him. The, the, the cup bearer is one of them. And then there's this other guy. And they, 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 he starts to interpret. They tell him they're worried. And he tells them, uh, tell me your dream because God can interpret dreams. And they tell him the dream. And to one of the guys, he says, hey, in three days, you're going to go back before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's going to take your life. But to the chief cupbearer, he says, you're going to go back, and you're going to be put back to right position, and, you're going to, and, and, and Pharaoh's going to place you back where you should be. And he makes a request to that guy. He says, will you do me a favor? When you get back to Pharaoh, will you remember me? Will you tell him my story? Will you tell him how I've, I've been unjustly thrown into prison? I didn't do anything to be here. Will you, just, will you remember me? And in that, I think a lot of us can understand and relate to the story of Joseph. Many of us come from dysfunctional families. All of us in some way understand rejection. We've been abandoned. We've been betrayed. We've been falsely accused. We've been forgotten by friends and family. And what happens for far too many people is these moments define their lives in a negative way. That anger, resentment, bitterness... Blame. They're, they're no longer just emotions that we feel. They become the resident assistants to our lives. That they accompany us everywhere we go and in everything we do. That they, they, they don't just they're not just things we feel, they become who we are. And this could have been the story of Joseph, but Joseph was different. Even though Joseph had been abandoned, even though he had been rejected, even though he'd been falsely accused and enslaved, imprisoned, forgotten about, instead of letting all of that stuff break him, it ended up making him. You see, instead of stopping his dream, it's what allowed his dream to come into fruition. Instead of it destroying him, he used it to propel him into destiny. So again, if you remember the story, you know that... The cupbearer's amnesia was removed 
when Pharaoh started to have his own reoccurring dream. And the Bible says all the sorcerers and, and, and all the wise men that were surrounding the Pharaoh tried to interpret the dream, but they could not interpret the dream. And then somehow the cupbearer catches news that Pharaoh is distraught over the dream that he can't get interpreted. And all of a sudden his amnesia goes away and he remembers. There's that guy in prison. And he interpreted my dream. And, and so, so what happens is he remembers Joseph and how he interpreted the dream. And he tells the king, he tells Sarah about Joseph. Joseph is summoned from prison. He, the Bible says he cleans himself up. He's brought to the palace and he's placed before Pharaoh. And I want you to see how Joseph responded. And I want you to notice the change we see in Joseph's heart. In Genesis 41 He's having a conversation with the Pharaoh, verse 16. He's having a conversation with the Pharaoh about the dream. And he says this, it's beyond my power to do this. But God can tell you what the dream means and he can put you at ease. And Joseph tells Pharaoh, I can't, but God can. You see, it's been about 15 years of tragedy and heartbreak. Joseph has become an entirely different man in this point in life for the good. You see, this isn't the arrogant, spoiled, favored 17-year-old little brother who embitters the people around him. This is the, What he's done is he's let his affliction mature him. He's let it change him and, and better him. And, and he's even let it humble him. And so Pharaoh, what happens is he interprets the dream. The dream becomes reality. And Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. He makes him the most powerful man in the known world. And Joseph, the story goes on, implements a plan that God gives him. And he saves the world from starvation. And in a unique turn of events, while he's saving the world from starvation, his brothers show up into Egypt because they're in a famine and they need food. They don't know who he is, but he knows who they are. And to make a long story short, they end up before Joseph without knowing he's their brother. When his identity is revealed, they end up bowing before him and begging for mercy, just like that dream that he told him when he was 17 years old, said they would. But Joseph is no longer a 17-year-old kid. He's 39 years old when that happens. He's a grown man. He has a lot of authority. And he could have easily gotten revenge. He could have stuck it to his brothers. But instead, Joseph has a different perspective on life. And he has a different mentality about people. And he has a different perspective of God. And so, so, so what happens is he refuses to let the trauma give way to bitterness and anger. And that's in that moment, Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. So I want to preach to you quickly today. I want to take that verse in Genesis 50, 20, and I want to preach to you some of the key phrases that we see in that scripture. And I'm going to start right in the middle because I think right in the middle is one of the most pivotal parts that we see when Joseph looked at his brothers and said, He, God, is who brought me here. He brought me to this position. I need you to see this. This one phrase clearly shows us Joseph's perspective on life. 
Because, because the way he viewed his past, the way he viewed his backstory, the way he viewed his pain, the way he viewed all the injustices that had got him to this moment is what it shows us. It gives us a glimpse into Joseph's theology and it gives us a glimpse into the way he viewed God's agenda and God's involvement in his life. When Joseph said that it was God that brought me to this, this position, what he's doing is acknowledging the sovereignty of God in the middle of every situation in life that no matter how bad it is, no matter what the doctor's report is, no matter what happens in my family, no matter what goes on in the economy, I trust that God is involved and intertwined into every part of my life. And he said, I, it wasn't your evil that brought me here. It was God who brought me to this position. And we see the theology. He could recognize that God used all parts, the good, the bad, the ugly, the evil to advance Joseph to destiny. I want to ask you a question. What comes to mind when you think about the Lord? Do you blame him in situations or do you trust him in situations? Right? You have to see that's the way, the way I've tried to, to, to view life and the perspective of God is that in every situation is a new opportunity to trust the Lord. No matter what it is, no matter what doctor's report it is, no matter what, 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 what unmet expectation it is, no matter what goes on in your family or in your life, every opportunity in your life is a new opportunity to trust the Lord. And there, let's be honest, there are moments and seasons that we go through things and it's like, you know what, God, if you gave me an option and said you can learn to trust me through this situation or you can learn to not deal or you can have the option to not deal with this situation, there are moments in life where I would decide, God, I don't want to learn to trust you this way. But it's not my choice. I'm going to have to deal with this situation. And so I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to point the finger at you. I'm not going to not trust you. I'm going to trust you in a new way in this situation. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, what comes to mind when you think about the Lord is the most important thing about you. And Joseph acknowledged that God used what was bad to bring him to purpose and destiny. God brought me to this position. So that's the most important part. Let's backtrack to the beginning of that verse. And he does point out, he tells his brothers, you intended to harm me. He's very upfront and very clear. I know what you did and I know what your, out I know what your, pr your proposed outcome was. You intended for evil to be done to my life. Joseph knew that the source of evil was not the hand of God. The source of evil was the, was the hands and hearts of evil people. You see, for those of you who have a past like mine or, or a past like Joseph, or maybe today is not even a past. Maybe you're in the present and it's, right, part, it's part of your story today. I want you to hear me. Adopting Joseph's perspective on life and on God is the only perspective that will keep you from going insane and living a life full of destiny. It's the perspective that, that knowing no matter what has happened or no matter what is happening, God has promised that he will use all of the evil and all of the bad and all of the pain and he will turn it in to something, God, to something good. That he will orchestrate people and events and he will bring purpose out of pain. You see, knowing that and resting in that is how Joseph navigated years of slavery and years of being put in prison and years of injustice. It's how I've learned to navigate my life after years of exploitation. You see, I've come to know God the same way that Joseph knew God. And I live my life recognizing the frugality of God. Let me explain that to you. That we have these covenant names in the Bible that he's Jehovah Jireh. You know that one. 
He's a provider. He's Jehovah Shalom. He's my peace. He's Jehovah Nisi. He's a, he's a banner of victory around. You know, so we know all there's these covenant names in the Bible that tell I, I don't know if I should. And, and but I, I made up a, a covenant name for God. I call him Jehovah Frugal. Is that, he don't waste anything. God doesn't waste anything. And I've learned that in God's frugality, He takes the darkest parts of our life and uses them for His glory. And I've learned that, that the stuff that most of us, if God said, here's a big eraser, you can take that, that you, can, you can erase whatever chapter you want. Most of the chapters we would erase are the exact chapters God uses to become platforms to bring honor and to bring glory to His name. And, in, and, and what Joseph learns is that in God's frugality, he doesn't, he doesn't just throw away parts of our story. He builds platforms and He, he advances the gospel and He changes people's lives and, and He propels us into destiny all from the parts of our story that we're not proud of. That, that in God's frugality He doesn't waste our pain. He promises to redeem it and bring purpose out of it. Joseph's brothers meant evil. They had intentions of harming him. He tells them that. You intended to harm me. But the next phrase says this, but God. That Joseph's brothers meant anything but good. They wanted to harm him. They wanted to ruin his life. They meant bad. They desired evil. They wanted to harm him. But the next words out of Joseph's mouth were, but God. And you've got to get this kind of vocabulary deep in your spirit. That you, that you, you see, these are some of the most powerful words you will ever say. When you use the phrase, but God, what, you're, what you are doing is revealing there's a divine interruption happening in my life. And that's what Joseph was doing, that, that every time these words in Scripture happen, it's a divine interruption. Every time there's a but God moment in life, it's a divine interruption. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 73, because he said, my health may fail and my spirit, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my life. You see, when Paul was preaching about Jesus in Antioch, he said this. When they had done all the prophecies said about him, they took him down from the, the cross and they placed him in a tomb. It looked like it was over. It looked like it was done. It looked like he was dead. But God, is what the Bible says in Acts 13, raised him from the dead. What is he saying? It looked like it wasn't going to work out. But God, a divine interruption. Paul was writing to the church of Ephesians and he said this in verse 1 of chapter 2. Once you were dead because you were were disobedient for many sins. But then a few verses later, once you were dead, it looked like you didn't have any hope. It looked like you'd never ha have any purpose in life. But God was so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that he, he, he gave us a second chance at life is what he says. And then in, what he says in, in, in Genesis 50, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. You see, when you read those words, but God, it notes a divine interruption and that everything's about to change. You see, I fully believe for some of us today, this is a divine interruption in the storyline of your life. That you need to realize there's a but God moment. I've been going through stuff, but God's going to step in the middle of it. I've been experiencing loss, but God's going to step in in the middle of it. I've been, I, I, the economy's messing with my, my retirement. But God is, God owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns the Cadillac in a thousand parking lots. He's a provider. But God's going to step in and I'm going to trust God in a new way. And we realize it's a divine interruption. Now I want you to look at the phrase that follows that. 
But God intended it all for good. You have to notice that the intentions of men were evil, but the intentions of God were good. But they weren't just good. They were so good. They were so good that God was going to untangle the evil of man and use it to propel Joseph into his promise and promote him into his destiny. So, so, so listen, if you want to stay sane in the middle of heartbreak, if you want to stay sane in the middle of injustice, you have to adopt Joseph's perspective on life and on God. Through all of the years, Joseph never let it jade him towards God. He always held on to the truth that God was up to something good. I'm going to tell you, I want to introduce you to one of the core convictions of my life. I live my life believing that God is always up to something good. Always up to something good. No matter what situation I'm in, no matter what, what hurdle I'm facing as a, as a husband or as a father or as a pastor, no matter what, I live life with this core conviction that God, you're always up to something good. You're never up to something bad. The enemy's always doing his thing, but the God I serve is always up to something good. And from the pit to Potiphar's house to the prison, around every corner, Joseph was expecting good from the hands of God. He trusted that God was up to something good. You see, there's a pattern in that verse that we see all throughout Scripture. It's the same pattern that if I believe you, if you pay attention, you'll see it in your own life. And here's the pattern. Evil, God, good. You see it in the life of Joseph, and I believe you can see it in your own life today. The Whether it's the evil that someone else caused are the evil that we caused in our own life with our own decisions. That there's evil, but God promises to step in to the middle of all the evil. And every time there's a, that God steps in, it's a but God moment of grace. It's a but God moment of hope. It's a but God moment of deliverance. It's a but God moment of joy. It's a but God moment of restoration. And so, so it's evil, but God steps in. And every time he steps in, something good comes out of all of that evil. That's what he did in Joseph's life. That's what he's doing in my life. I believe it's what he wants to do in your life. But God meant it for good. Let's look at this last phrase together. Because he says, you intended to harm me, but God brought me to this position and he meant everything for good so that I could save the lives of many people. This is the why. This is the purpose that God redeemed the pain and he turned the evil into good so that there would be the saving of many lives. See, if you're brokenhearted today, if you're living with a backstory of pain or brokenness or injustice, I want you to lean in today. I want you to see that when you are going through all the affliction in your life, God is not just preparing you for your destiny. Simultaneously what's happening is He's preparing the people you're supposed to impact when you get there. 
that it is a two-way street. And as God is moving you towards your destiny, He's moving you toward the people and He's moving the people towards you that you are called to impact in that moment. That I need you to hear this. Your destiny is not just about you. That He's redeeming the evil that has been aimed at you so that you can save the lives of many people. There's purpose in your pain and that purpose is connected to your ministry to serve other broken people. I'll put it this way. It's one of my favorite ways to put it. Your pain is a passport into other people's brokenness. You guys know how a passport works. And just took my family on vacation a few months ago and it was a, the girl's first trip on an airplane and, uh, and, and we had to get passports and, and they couldn't get in without the passport and they wouldn't let us back home without the passport. That passport gave us access into a place we could not go without it. And you need to see that, that those parts of your story that you don't like, those parts of your story that you would rewrite, those parts of your story that have been hard to deal with and have not been easy to tell, those are the passports that allow you to speak into the broken parts of other people's lives. That, that if you can see God like Joseph did, you will gain this revelation that God will take the seed from every sorrow and he will plant it into somebody else's tomorrow. That God will take the seeds of your sorrow and he'll extract something from today's pain and he'll seed it into the promise of your future. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. I was thinking about some of my friends. Hey, Joe, will you help me? I didn't forewarn you. In season and out of season, right? thinking about one of my friends. There's a guy that's on our staff. He's, a, he's, a, he's one of my youth pastors named Derek. And Derek, he turned down a full-ride scholarship to go play tennis at a D1 school because he was going to be an actor 10, 12, 13 years ago, something like that. And, and so he moved off to Hollywood to pursue the dream of acting and Kind of got into some stuff, some commercials, some, some, some documentaries. But while he was there, he also, he got hooked on drugs and, and, and that wrecked his life. And he ended up, he'd never been to, to my home or the, home, the, the town I call home now. He'd never been to Cape Girardeau before in his life. But that drug addiction landed him in Teen Challenge, much like John 3.16, some of you are familiar with. He went through that program and. And, and God delivered him and, and God saved him. And he got plugged into our church. And we had at that point, we had a transition home where once you graduated the program, you could live in our house and you could work for us. And we'd help you in, in, that, in that transition period of a year. And, 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 then, and that's been eight, nine years ago. And Derek's never left. And, and Derek, he, he just, he hung around and we started to see the call of God on his life. And, and now someone who was homeless, and addicted to drugs in Hollywood. He's our youth pastor at our inner city campus. He oversees all of our outreach and he's pouring back into underprivileged youth because there's always good that comes from the bad and the ugly. I lead a discipleship group of three men in my church. We, we 
go through Bible reading plans and and we meet once a week at 5.30, usually on Thursday mornings. I tell them, I said, listen, my Bible, my, our, our discipleship group is like a bad joke because it's a preacher, a banker, a cop, and a former drug dealer. That's, <laughs> that, that's those are the four guys. And my friend Marcus, I remember when we first started getting to know each other and he said, Chad, if you knew my story, I had never thought I'd have a pastor's number in my phone. And when we started that discipleship group, <laughs> That first, that first meeting, we were sitting there, I don't know, four or five months ago. And he looked at me, and he looked at our, my, the other guys, and he said, I certainly never thought I'd have a pastor's number in my phone. And I for sure never thought I'd have a cop's number in my phone. <laughs> and Marcus, I remember the first time he showed up after on a, on a, he was showing up to church on Sundays, but in a larger church, you kind of get, swept into the crowd and you don't get noticed as much and and he showed up to serve at an event at a ladies event all of our men were serving to that event and one of the ladies on our staff called me and said there's a guy here and I don't think he's supposed to be here and she was kind of scared of him because of the way he appeared because he looks like what he's been through and he he got he got hooked on drugs and ended up going to prison for many many years and But in prison, he met a, in Ozark Correctional Facilities over in Ozark, that part of Missouri around Branson, he went to a chapel service and God changed his life. And when he got out, his family had moved to Cape Girardeau where we're at and he started coming to our church and, and God began to continue that work. And now he's in the, he, right now he's in the process of getting his chaplaincy papers so that he can go back into local prisons. And, and we're already, and, and next year I'm going to South America, to Columbia, South America. And we're going to go to a men's prison that has 1,600 men in that prison. And Marcus is going with me. And Marcus is going to tell his story of, of deliverance and how the quality of his life has changed. Because there's always good that comes from the bad and from the ugly. There's always. Just a few weeks ago, Monica and I were able to take some of my friends to, to lunch. They were, in, they were in our area. A guy named Maxim and his wife, Julia, they are pastors born, raised, and pastors. They planted a church 25 years ago in Ukraine. And you guys know what's going on with Ukraine right now. And we're sitting here at lunch and, and we're talking about what's happening in Ukraine and, and how, you know, he's telling me, he's like, Chad, I need you to come to Ukraine. And I said, I, I, I will in a couple years when the war's over. And, he, and, and he's looking at my wife like, you need to let him come to Ukraine. <laughs> and... Uh, and he said, I need you to come in December. And I said, I don't. But he had just showed me videos where bombs were going off like a block away from his church. And I was like, I don't. And he's like, it's safe. You don't got to worry. And I was like, I don't think this is safe, Max. This doesn't feel, doesn't feel very safe. And in the middle of bombs going off, in the middle of war, he said, I've mobilized my church to become local missionaries. And, and they started, he said, we started doing, we were doing feeding programs and all of that, but then there was enough food. And he said, we just took some ladies in our church. And he said, we started giving away haircuts. And he was like, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but in a war-torn country where everything is not normal, it brought dignity back to people. And he said, we started giving away haircuts. He said, but what they did not realize were haircuts were just, they were the facade for what we really wanted to do. And, and, and he said, my prayer team started praying with people. 
And he said, we're in the middle of, of bombs going off and, and cities being blown and, and, and families being separated. And he said, and God's healing people and God's delivering people. And he said, and then a few weeks after showing up to give haircuts, he said, they quit showing up and asking for haircuts. They started showing up and said, where's that guy who prays? <laughs> and in the middle of a war-torn country, there's good coming in the middle of the bad and the ugly. I told you my story at the beginning. And what I, what I realized, there was, a, there was a day several years ago, the Lord spoke to me about the abuse that I went through. And he said, Chad, I want you to be what you wish you had had in a different season of life. I didn't know what it meant at that point in life. I didn't know what it, I didn't know what it would all entail. But my wife and I started to pray. And we started to dream and we got connected to some certain ministries and some certain pastors that, that showed us some things. And we started a nonprofit a few years ago. And what we started doing, we just hosted our first camp in August of this year for abused and abandoned children. For little boys and girls like me. It's, it's, the neatest, it's really it's one of the most fun weeks of their life. We, we have a blast. We, we, and it's, it's, so for every kid there, I've got three volunteers. So for 40 kids, I, you know, I, 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 there's, a, there's an army of people there because every kid, we want them to be seen, known, and loved, intentional, one-on-one -on -one time with them. We don't want them to feel like part of a herd. We want them to feel like I, I matter. So we do all this intentional fun stuff with them and, and we, we throw, most of our kids are in the foster care system and if you know anything about foster care, what happens is you get moved from home to home a lot. And where I'm at, there's, there's in the four counties around me, there's 400, I'm sorry, the two counties around me, there's 400 kids in foster care. We're, next weekend, we're doing a, a Christmas party for, for, um, for two counties for their foster care kids. And they, the lady told me, she said, there's 198 kids in foster care in our two counties, and we've got seven foster families. So they get moved around a lot. And, and in that, their birthday a lot of times gets missed. And so we started doing something at our camps. We throw a birthday party for every kid there. And, uh, and, we're, and, we, and we give them a, a, a cake and, and the party. And then they go back to the room and there's presents on all of their beds. And because we believe every kid deserves to have their birthday celebrated. I'll tell you a neat moment. We're in the middle of that birthday party. And we're at a campground in Piedmont, Missouri. And there's a girl over in the corner and she's crying. Just weeping. And one of my volunteers walked over to her and said, sweetie, are you all right? And she said, yeah. I grew up in foster care and I never had a birthday party. And I think this is the coolest thing that you guys are doing right here. And, uh, and just all of that culminates with a moment. We take them up on a mountaintop. And because we're working with the state, you have to understand working with the state I can't just give an altar call like what we would give in church. I can't proselyte. And so they know we're faith-based, but we gotta, we gotta jump through loopholes to kinda to do certain things. And, and so I can't give an altar call like, hey, do you wanna give your life to Jesus? But what I can do is stand before them and tell my story. And I tell them, here's the parts I wished I could erase, but I can't. So I, so I found something out. I found out that Jesus could forgive me of my sins, but I also found out Jesus could heal my broken heart. 
But I have to give him the broken parts of my heart for him to start to heal them. And we tell that story around the mountaintop. And what I do is I give these rocks out. They're these big white rocks like this. And I just say, hey, here's rocks and here's a, here's a marker. If there's anything you want to leave, if there's any part of your life that you want Jesus to start to heal, would you like to put those? There's rocks here, which, and it's our altar call. All right? I can't say come give your life to Jesus, but I can say do you want to leave something? And they get the option to leave. And kid after kid after kid grabbed a rock. And this one is, and there, there, there's some, they're just gut-wrenching, heartbreaking. This is a little boy named Michael. He said, I want my family to stop fighting. God, will you make that happen? And he, and he put that down. There's some, God, will you help me forgive what my grandpa did to me? Will you help me to forgive? Will you help my mama find a home? And, and, and it's these stories. And there was a few weeks ago, there's a guy on our staff that um, he, he runs all the janitorial stuff at the church. And I thought he was getting on to me because I've had all my camp stuff plugged into a certain room in the church for a lot of weeks now. And it's, and it's been semi-organized, but not the way it should be, you know, because we're all busy. And, I, and Dave Reinhardt came and Dave, and, and he said, Chad, I want you to come with me. We need to look in this room. And I thought I was going to get in trouble because I've been telling him I was going to get the room clean. And I was like, Dave, I'll get it. And he was like, no, I just want it. And we went in the room. <coughs> and he started weeping. I said, Dave, what's wrong? I'll get the, I'll get the room clean. It's, like, it's, not, it's not a big deal. I'll get the room clean. And he said, no. I read all the rocks. And what we're seeing, what we're seeing is all the pain from that part of my life come to a moment where there's good that comes from the bad and from the ugly. I want to show you this, and I'm, I hope I'm not going too long. You guys move service up, so I don't know what time you get out. <laughs> so, Hans never tells me what time to end. He just says, just preach until you're done. So, <laughs> all right, all right. What we're seeing. We started this nonprofit called Restore the Wonder. And the whole purpose is when you go through stuff like that, some of you in the room may know, your life, your innocence, the wonder of childhood gets taken away way, way before it should, you know? And so we're given weeks at camp and other ways, and we're trying to restore back all the stuff the enemy stole from their life. Because there's always good that comes from the bad and from the ugly. And what I have found is God is no respecter of persons. And the pain of my life, if it can be redeemed, the pain of your life can be redeemed. The bad and the ugly parts of your story, God can use them. So let me say this to you. The phrase that I mentioned earlier on that was the defining part of Joseph's life was this. The Lord was with Joseph. Not just in the good times and not just when he was prospering. The Lord was with Joseph in the pit when he felt betrayed. The Lord was with Joseph in slavery. The Lord was with Joseph in temptation. The Lord was with Joseph in accusations. And I want to tell you this morning that the Lord is with you. The Lord's with you in your despair. 
The Lord's with you in your shame. The Lord's with you in your addiction. The Lord's with you in your grief. The Lord's with you in your divorce. The Lord's with you in your anger. The Lord is with you in your bitterness. The Lord's with you in your depression. The Lord is with you in your questions. The Lord is with you in your doctor's report. And he, he sees your pain and He wants you to know that there's purpose in it. And if you will place the broken parts of your life into the hands of a restoring, redeeming God, then there will be good that comes from the bad and from the ugly. I'm going to pray for you. And I want you to see the pattern of Joseph's life because I believe it can be the pattern of all of our lives. He was in a pit. He was in a prison. But he found himself in a palace. And it can be the story of your life. It's becoming the story of my life. I've been through pit moments. I've been through prison moments. But all of it's for the palace moment where God redeems and brings forth every dream in your heart. Let me pray for you today, God. I pray for my friends. God, I feel like they're an extended part of my family. I've been doing life for a long, long time now, God. What's funny to me is 10, 11, 12 years ago when I first started preaching here, I couldn't tell this story because I wasn't healed and I hadn't overcome and I hadn't worked through. But over the years, your grace, your mercy, good pastors and friends and some counseling sessions, all of that has brought me to this place where something 10, 11 years ago when I first came here, I would have never wanted to ever tell a soul. You've turned it into the greatest platform of my life. You've turned it into the, the dream that I feel like that my wife and I will give our heart to. For, for, the, for as long as we're alive, we're going we're gonna to give our hearts to these little boys and these little girls who are whose narrative has been written in a way it shouldn't have. And we're going to interject hope and wonder back into their life. And just like you've done it for me over the years, I believe, God, you're doing it in the hearts of people in this room. For some of them, they're in the middle of the process. For some of them, today's a day where they start the process. Today is a day where they realize that painful moment is not in vain. And God, their pain is not going to reflect my pain. Their story is not going to reflect my story. It's not all abuse. Some people in the room have been through addiction and God's going to use them to help other people in addiction. Some people in the room have had marital struggles and, and, and it almost ended but God stepped in and they're going to, and part of their story and part of their ministry in life is to help other couples who are in those seasons and you're going to birth that in them. Some of them, it didn't work out and they went through a divorce, and, but they've learned to love again and have blended families and, and you're going to help them have a ministry where they serve and, and, they, and, they, and they show these, these, these blended families how to serve the Lord and love each other in the middle of all of that the stuff that comes with that. God, for some of them in the room, they, 
They've been through health crisis. And they've been asking the question, why do I have to go through this? And I believe one day soon there's going to be a conversation around a, a cup of coffee or a conversation in a church pew where someone else has a diagnosis and they can look, at the, look them in the eye and they can say, here's how I learned to trust God in that situation and I believe you can trust Him too. And all the bad and ugly parts of their life, there's going to be good that comes from it. We trust you with that. We believe you for it. And I pray that today, God, you would seal it in our hearts and we trust you in a way we've never had to before. And we believe, God, I believe there's a but God moment, a divine interruption happening right now. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen, amen. amen. Thank you guys so much for letting me be here.